And one of the things that we see in the book of Isaiah is sometimes when world powers get involved in conflict situations, the little guy gets caught in the middle. And this was certainly true for the people in Isaiah's day and time. In the 6th century BC, the nation of Babylon came to the rise in the Middle East and they actually overthrew the nation of Assyria, which was the world power at that time. And so fresh off of their victory, the armies of Babylon look around and they say, all right, we've taken down Assyria, who are we going to take out next? And so they look at the next big world power, and that is Egypt, and they say, all right, we're coming after you, Egypt. And so the armies of Babylon march down towards Egypt. They march through the land of Judah, and they position themselves right at the southern portion of the nation of Judah, and they attack the nation of Egypt. And they're so successful, it takes them two years, but they've now defeated the largest two powers in the ancient Near East. And so they think to themselves, this is fantastic. We are unstoppable. There is nothing and no one that we cannot take out. And so then they look around and they think to themselves, hmm, who shall we attack next? Well, we're right here in Judah anyways. Why don't we just start with these guys? But you see, a strategic mistake was made by Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah. Uh, A few years prior to this, Hezekiah got deathly ill. He was very, very sick, and to the point that he thought he was going to die. And God actually was merciful to him and healed him of that. And so, and the custom in that day and time was that if somebody was really sick and then they got better, you sent them a present, and you went and visited them. Not while they were sick. That would be just in bad taste. But when they got better, you should go and visit them and bring them something. So, A nation comes, people come from the nation of Babylon, some messengers to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and say, oh, Hezekiah, we're just so excited and glad to hear that you're better. And Hezekiah gets a little bit overexcited about these envoys and says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Let me show you around a little bit. So he takes him on a little bit of a tour of his kingdom. And Isaiah chapter 39 says uh, he made a critical error because he actually showed them everything in his kingdom. He opened up, it says, his treasuries of gold and silver. And he says to this nation, who is like busy conquering the ancient Near East, hey, look at all of the gold that I have in my treasury. Kind of like maybe Scrooge McDuck, you know, from uh, DuckTales. He opens his vaults and then he's going to get stolen from. So um, the word gets back to the king of Babylon. Hey, Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, if you need some funding for your conquest of the ancient Near East, there's this guy named Hezekiah, and when we visited him, he had more gold than Scrooge McDuck has. You should attack him. This would be a good way to fund your next war. And so Babylon attacked the city of Jerusalem, and you can read about the siege in 2 Kings chapter 25. It was a horrible, horrible attack. The nation of Babylon's strategy was to starve the people that they were, so they would marshal their um, uh, armies around them and just let the food supplies in the city dwindle until there was nothing left 
and then they would move in and attack. And so two years, the people of Jerusalem were starving, and finally the armies of Babylon breached the wall, and there's no food left in the city, and the whole city is ransacked and burned to the ground. And historians recount this event as one of the most cataclysmic destructions uh, that the people of Israel or Judah ever knew in their history. It became known as the exile because the armies of Babylon then took the people of Jerusalem and exiled them to the nation of Babylon, just like the armies of Assyria had done to the neighboring uh, city of Samaria and the people of Israel to the north of them. And now the armies of Babylon knocked down the wall, and 2 Kings 25 says every prominent house in the city was burned to the ground. The temple was absolutely ransacked, and in fact, the stones that built the temple, Solomon's temple, were ripped off of each other and just burned and desecrated so that it would never be rebuilt. And all of this happens at the end of chapter 39 and before the start of chapter 40. There's actually like a hundred years between those two chapters in that little chapter space break there. And it's important to understand that then going into the rest of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is actually writing to people who are living in captivity, who have experienced this horrible, horrible event of being marched off into Babylon as captives. And so if I was Isaiah writing to these people, the tone I would take at the end of my book would be, you see, I told you so. I talked to you about this, that if you didn't change, all of this bad stuff was going to happen. And now, who's right? I'm right. You didn't pay any attention at all. You didn't repent. But Isaiah's tone is actually quite different in the end of Isaiah. For the next 26 chapters, it's a tone of comfort. It's a tone trying to answer questions that people are asking. Because they've experienced such intense pain and loss in their lives. And now they're trying to make sense of it. And one of the things that I'm struck by reading this section of Isaiah is how helpful and instructive it actually is for us to learn to be with people who are experiencing crisis or have experienced crisis in their lives. Or times of hardship in our own lives. Because that's the basic question that we begin to ask, isn't it? When something comes into our lives or when we walk through deep waters, and some of you may be in those spaces today. Some of you may not be, and so we rejoice with you if you're celebrating. But some of you are in hard, walking through challenging circumstances. And it's important in those times to have a rich understanding of what does the scripture say to us about these deeper questions of life. Many of you know somebody that's walking through hard times and asking questions about why life has turned out the way that it was. And so this section of the book of Isaiah from chapter 40 all the way through till chapter 66 is written with rich and deep theology and rich and deep poetry to actually help us understand some of those questions. Because the chaos and the dissonance that can happen in your life when you walk into or are experiencing those hard times can be those those places that disrupt faith and disrupt confidence in who God is and who you are and what life is supposed to be like. See, these people of Israel were so 
deeply convinced that they were the chosen people of God. They were deeply loved by God. And that their nation could not fall because God loved them so much. But their nation fell. People were convinced the great temple that Solomon had built, the one place on earth where God in the Old Testament had commanded that his presence would dwell. Oh, surely the temple would be spared. Nothing could happen to the temple because that's like God's house. And yet it was burned to the ground. The people of Isaiah's day were convinced that God had given them the land. It had been promised to them and to their ancestors And though all of their history, wars and rumors of wars, it had largely stayed under their control. But now they were invaded and displaced for an entire generations. And so we enter the period of Isaiah 40 to 66. And the prophet is writing to these people who are living in captivity in Babylon. And they're asking, why did this happen to us? Why God? After all of your promises to us, after your presence was with us, all of these things, why did this happen? Because the people in, that Isaiah is writing to are starting to say things like, well, maybe we misunderstood. Maybe God actually doesn't care about us at all. Maybe God has forgotten us. Maybe he used to care for us, but now he's just thrown us away and discarded us. Or maybe, maybe God actually isn't as powerful as he said that he is. Because if he was as powerful, maybe couldn't he have stopped this from happening to us? Doesn't the presence of bad things in my life mean that God isn't with me in some way? People are asking these questions. And all of us have to wrestle to a greater or lesser degree in our experience with how can God be good when the world around us contains so much evil. And our text today reminds us that really things are not simple when it comes to processing this question. Author and theologian Karl Barth, who was arguably one of the most influential uh, Christian thinkers of the mid-20th century, had a phrase that he liked to use to describe things that we deal with in our life. We deal with things in our lives that are in tension with each other. Things that both seem like they could be true. Now, this isn't true of every area of our life, but this is true of some areas of our lives where two things could be seemingly polar opposites, but true at the same time. And his term for this was dialectics, dialectical tensions. And dialectical tensions exist all around us. They exist in the world of physics, where two seemingly improbably true physical principles or scientific principles are both true. They exist in our own relationships, where we can deeply love someone, but also be very frustrated with them at the same time, sometimes in the same moment. Dialectics is where we experience this tension or this tug of war it's like two things are at the end of a tug of war and they're both pulling and they both actually have somewhat equal strength so it's not like one of them is winning the tug of war it's that they're just in tension with each other and the rope is kind of moving a little bit and we have to try and figure out how do you live with that tension 
because these two seemingly opposite ideas are competing for our attention. That's called dialectics. And the challenge is we're not really good at this as human beings because we like to be able to sort of give very clear-cut and definitive, no, this is true, therefore this cannot be true. But there are things when it comes to our attempts to understand God and grow in relationship with him where two seemingly opposite things about his character can both be true in the same instance. And so it's hard for us, but we have to learn to hold the rope intention over time it can be confusing for us and you'll see as we go through our text what i mean and uh, this morning we're going to look at four dialectical tensions in this chapter and we'll see two things that are true of god but that don't seem like they could both be true at the same time so i'm going to begin reading in isaiah chapter 40 starting at verse 1 where isaiah writes and says Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and that her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all of her sins. And right away we're introduced to this contradictory idea, these two seemingly opposite ideas, that God has punished the people for their sins, but God also desires to speak comfort into their lives but they're still in captivity so how is that true and the tension that begins to exist in their own thinking as well as in ours at the one end of the tug of rope we have God's love and at the other we have his judgment and so how do we wrestle with those things and think about what's just happened to these people and in our own lives so one of the tensions that exists is that God's judgment does not contradict his love, and his love does not contradict his judgment. That's the first dialectical tension. God's judgment does not contradict his love, but his love does not contradict his judgment. And the image that is helpful for us here comes from the language or the world of parenting. As a parent, if you have children, any discipline that your child receives must be rooted in love and in a care and concern for them with their best interest at heart. Now, does the child experience it in that way? No. As a parent, though, your sense of wanting to bring correction is not out of a place of non-love. It should come from a deep sense of love. So it's not an absence of discipline, it's actually an absence of love. And the same thing is true of God. The Lord's correction for us, the scripture says, continuously is rooted in his care for us. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this. Proverbs chapter 3 talks about this. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My child, do not reject the Lord's discipline and do not be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those that he loves, just like a parent corrects a child in whom they delight. Isaiah says to people in captivity who have experienced this horribly cataclysmic event, just because you've experienced God's judgment does not mean that God does not love and care for you. Just because you have experienced something done to you 
does not mean that God's love does not extend to you. You've experienced God's discipline on a group of people for their inappropriate behavior and rejection of him. But his correction is ultimately rooted in God's incredible love and care for you. So this is dialectical tension number one. Let's keep reading and we'll see tension number two. God's judgment does not contradict his love. Verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 40. Listen, Isaiah says, this is the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make straight a highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys, level the mountains and the hills, straighten out the curves, smooth out the rough places, and then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. Now here we brush up against the second tension and it's one of the most confusing and common questions that we ask ourselves as people attempting to follow God. In any given situation, what is God's part and God's responsibility and what is my part and my responsibility? When it comes to God's love for my neighbors. Like what is my part in living that out, in reaching them? What is God doing in that part? What about caring for creation? What's my part in that? And what is God's part in that? What about seeking justice and making the world a better place? What of that is God doing or going to do? And what of that is my responsibility to do? It's a big question and a tricky question to try and wrestle with. But one aspect of this tension that the people in Isaiah's day were experiencing is that they were so locked in to God's promises about the land and the temple and them being God's people, so focused on those things that they began to minimize or ignore the consequences for their own behavior. And so here's one way of maybe expressing that tension that they were feeling and that we feel as well. And that is, number two, God's promises do not override human actions. God's promises do not override human actions. If you read through the promises and the covenants that God makes to his people in the Bible... See, we love to emphasize the positive aspects of those. Oh, yes, God will protect us. Oh, yes, God will bless us. Oh, yes, God's going to do X or God's going to do Y. Yet sometimes we neglect to read the other aspects of those promises that describe and invite clearly what we are to do and what we are responsible for. Oftentimes, God will say to the people in the Old Testament, listen, I'm going to promise you this and be faithful to these promises, but I will also ask that you be faithful to these promises in the following ways. And intriguingly, in this sequence of verses here, that kind of activity is described. God declares what he wants to have happen in verse Five, he says, I want to have my glory revealed and I want to have all of the people of the earth see it together. The Lord has spoken, it says. So that's what God wants to have happen. But then God says in verse three, okay, 
if people are going to see and experience my glory and my love, then I need you as my people to begin to act in ways that this is possible. I need you to speak out an invitation for people to experience me. I need you to live in such a way that the nations around you will see that I have blessed you and called you to be my people and that they will want to come into relationship with me as a result of that. I need you to live in such a way that barriers to people knowing me are removed. It's like clearing brush is the image that's here. Or it's like raising up bumps in the road and flattening it out, making a nice smooth highway, filling in the valley so that people can clearly see, oh, that's what God is like. And the sequence here is important. First, God says what he wants to have happen. This is my heart. I want the nations to come and know and experience me. And then we act in responsive obedience to that desire that God has expressed. And then God uses and chooses our participation to then bring his promises to fruition. But this is the challenging piece because just because God promises something doesn't mean that we can't by our own inactivity or disobedience and the choice of our free will mess that up. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not process theology where somehow God has no idea what's going to happen next until we start doing something and then God goes, oh my goodness, I can't believe they just did that. Okay, I'm going to have to figure out what my plan is now uh, because they've totally changed what I thought they were going to do. It's not that. That our actions somehow surprise God or catch him off guard. I cannot by my actions as a finite human being force God to do something God has no intention of doing. But just because God wants something to happen for you and I to be the instruments or recipients of it doesn't mean that the thing automatically happens. Let me give you an example. God has an active desire for people around you in your neighborhood, in your condominium, in your townhouse complex to come to experience his love and his goodness. But you could just choose to sit and watch TV all summer and God's saying, would you like to participate in my demonstration of my love and goodness to the people around you that I put you in active relationship? And you say, no thanks God, I'm good. I, I, the Bachelorette is on, I need to watch that. So you can choose not to participate in what God actively desires to see accomplished in his world. God wants to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the dialectical tension that we live with is that just because God promises something doesn't automatically override our participation in or non-participation in bringing that thing to fruition. That's why it's a little bit tricky. So let me give you another example. Uh, an example maybe can be from uh, someone in your life that prays and listens to God, and God gives them a prophetic word for you that says, this is what I feel like is on God's heart for you. Someone might be praying for you, and they get a picture or an image or something that they say, you know, I just feel like the Lord wants to say this to you, or I feel like God wants you to use you in this way. Some, maybe God says to you, and I'm not picking on anybody, just say, um, I want you to reach the people of outer Mongolia. That could be the mission that God is calling you to. But, Someone can speak that word over you and say, you know, I just feel like the Lord is saying that this is for you. And you can say, yeah, I just really agree with that. You know, that must be on the Lord's heart for me. 
and you can still choose to never get on a plane and go to Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Outer Mongolia, in case you were wondering. So you can actually choose to negate or short-circuit something that God wants to bring to fruition in your life simply by you choosing not to act in any way. And that's just laziness. God may have promised the people of Outer Mongolia that someone is coming to tell them about Jesus, and you're like, no thanks, I'm not really up for that. And you are going to miss out on the privilege of participation that God wanted deeply for you to enjoy and has called you to because you're just being lazy and aren't willing to actually walk it out. Or worse, you're out and out rebellious and disobedient to something that you clearly know that God has asked for you to do. And this can happen to us not only as individuals, but can it also happen to us corporately as a faith community. We can fail to become what God wants us to be as a community if we just choose not to act on the things that we know to be true. That's disobedience. If we know that God's heart is for people here in Willoughby or in Clayton, or as you pray, God continues to put a coworker or a fellow student in your mind, and you just think, well, that must be weird. I don't want to do anything about that. We're just going to stay in a holy huddle here and act as if everybody around us already knows Jesus that God's promises are not for them, then we will short-circuit something that God wants to have happen by our inactivity or active disobedience, which is a powerful tension to try and wrestle with and live with. Okay, there's lots more that could be said here, but we got to keep going. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, we'll see our third one. So the first one is that God's judgment doesn't contradict his love. The second tension is God's promises do not override human actions automatically. And Isaiah 40, 6 to 8, has the next one. A voice says, shout. And I asked, what should I shout? Shout that the people are like grass and that their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers, the flower fades beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So here, last week we talked about seeds planted in the ground. Did you have some seeds sprouting? Anybody have seeds sprouting at their house this week? Yes, okay, good job. We had some seeds sprouting going on. Well planted, way to pay attention to instructions. Okay, you guys have done well. Those of you who have no seeds sprouting, we'll keep praying for you in faith. You may have planted it too deep. Maybe you misread misread the package. But uh, I'm struck by the reminder in this text that even though right now these seeds are sprouting and all around us it's spring and light green colors and vibrancy and new life and all of this stuff, when we get to the end of summer, the flower will have faded and withered and will be dead. And it will look yet again like winter in the Pacific Northwest. There's a fragility There's a temporal nature to this. And gardening and the natural world reminds us of this. Because Isaiah is saying that's true of our lives. In these verses, that fragility and that temporal nature of it is contrasted with God's character. See, God is consistently consistent. And so this third contrast that we live with is that God's faithfulness 
stands in contrast to our frailty. But God's faithfulness isn't negated by our frailty, but it is impacted by our frailty. And it's impacted by our frailty because the way that most people will, around you will experience as God is through you. And so if through your human frailty, you give people an inappropriate or non-helpful understanding of God, God's faithfulness is actually impacted by that. One example of this that I hear people talk about all the time is they'll say, well, I was hurt or deeply wounded by the church, which for many people has been a very true and very hard and hurtful experience. And one of the things to unpackage in that journey of growing uh, to healing from the experiences that maybe you have had in the church is to unpackage the fact that the church is an inanimate object. Like it's not like a steeple fell on you and then you were hurt by the church. That would be a legitimate expression of that phrase. You were hurt by a church. But what you're really saying, or at least what I'm hearing most often when I hear that described, is that specific people in a specific local gathering acted in such a way that created pain. And for so many people, this is true. And our human frailty then gives people the wrong idea or a a hurtful picture of God and what it means to be a part of the family of God. Because the Bible can declare that God is love all day long, but if God's people run around acting like jerks all the time, it's no wonder that the world has a hard time believing God's love to be true. So perhaps the best way to express this tension is in the words of esteemed contemporary theologian and country music superstar, Billy Currington, who simply says this, God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. All three of those things are true. God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. So if you have bad beer, it doesn't mean that God isn't good, it just means you had bad beer. If you ran into people that hurt you, it may be that those people were crazy. But God's goodness sometimes gets wrapped up into that. And people in the name of God in our world do all kinds of crazy and stupid things. And then God's faithfulness and his character get dragged through the mud with them and with us. But thankfully, though your stupidity and my stupidity might impact and tarnish God's reputation, it does not negate or change fundamentally who he is. He is still faithful. My lack of of faithfulness might be a representation of a fading flower, but God is unchanging. He never changes. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. The scripture says there's no changing in him. He's not inconsistent. People might be crazy. You might drink bad beer, but God is still good. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 49 to 11 to see how this continues to play itself out. O Zion, messenger of good news. God's calling his people. You were supposed to be the messenger of good news. Shout from the mountaintop. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout it. Do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. He brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock Like a shepherd, he will carry the lambs in his arms. He will hold them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep along 
with their young. You see, right here we see our fourth tension, and that is that God's gentleness does not contradict his might. God is a gentle shepherd. But if you continue to read the text of Isaiah 40, he's also an incomparably wise ruler. He's also a majestic warrior. He's also a just judge. He's also an all-powerful creator. And the whole of the rest of the chapter begins to unpack for the people and remind them of the things that they know to be true but have forgotten. Oh, you think God's not powerful enough to save and rescue you from Babylon's captivity? Look up at the heavens. The God who created and calls each of those stars by name cares for you. How could a God like that be incapable of rescuing you? Think about the might and the power of the nations. Don't fear. Look at the nations in our world. Think of nations like China or the United States or Russia. Think about in our setting and in our perspective what power they exercise militarily, economically, socially, and every other way. Look at verse 17 of chapter 40. Put all of those nations together. Add them all up. Weigh them on the scale. They're like emptiness and froth when it comes to comparing the power and greatness of God. You see, our challenge is that we get latched on to particular images or aspects of God's character. And oftentimes those challenges are answering, those aspects of God's questions are answering the questions that we're asking from personal experience. And that's not inappropriate, but what can happen subtly is that they begin to minimize or negate other aspects of God's character. There's a word for this. We call it cherry picking. And this poster, while irreverent, Made me bust a gut laughing so hard I just had to include it. Vengeful God, yeah, I'll skip that part. More parts I don't like in the Bible, skip, 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 skip. Oh good, oh good, I found a part I like. Jesus turned to those who gathered, bade them not to go swimming until at least a full hour had gone from when they finished the fish and loaves he brought forth unto them. You see, we love aspects of God that emphasize the things that we like to experience. Oh, God's gentleness when we're hurt. God's love when we're feeling lonely. But dialectics reminds us that when we do that and when we only do that one portion, we forget about other aspects of God's character and we need to cling to and embrace the whole of God's character. His power, his gentleness, his faithfulness in the face of our fragility, his desire to keep his promises despite our disobedience or inaction, his judgment that is rooted in and not separate from his love. And that's why chapter 40 ends with one of the most famous and comforting images in the book of Isaiah. In verse 27, Isaiah says to the people, how could you say that the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel, how could you say that God ignores your rights? He doesn't. He's not. Because have you not heard? Have you never understood the Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak. He gives strength to the weary and the powerless. Even youths will grow tired and weary. Young men will stumble and fall into exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord 
will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles and run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And maybe for you, you need fresh strength for today. Maybe for you, it's faith to believe that something that seems like it's never going to change is actually possible of changing. Maybe it's a circumstance in your life. I know I have those in my life where I grow tired and weary and I need God to remind me of his faithfulness. I need to be reminded that though I may give up and stop praying for that, that God is still faithful and he still cares. Maybe there's an aspect of God's character that you have overlooked, either intentionally or unintentionally, and that you need to embrace that. Maybe this morning, one of the words of the songs will strike you and you'll think, yeah, God, I need to remind myself, I need to be reminded about, yet again, about that aspect of your character. I need to learn more about it, to ask you to show me more about it. Maybe there's an aspect of your life that you feel like God has overlooked or forgotten about. But you need today to cling to the parts of his character that you can see in his faithfulness and his goodness, even though you may feel like you're a fading flower at the end of the season. There are some promises of God that are true and faithful, even when we do not feel that they are. Hebrews reminds us that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And because of his finished work on the cross, that you and I can know God. And this is the promise that God wants you to embrace. This dialectical tension exists for us because God is in your life and in our world. And that does not mean that all of the bad things instantly are not in your life and in your world. See, the Lord is still the everlasting God. He's still the creator of the ends of the earth. You and I might be growing weary and stumbling and tiring and fatiguing, but he's not. And so our confidence and our trust needs to be rightly placed, and our strength needs to be found in him today. So Ron and the team are coming. They're going to lead us in songs of response that speak to this. And some of you might just need to spend time just quietly in your seat, repenting and saying, God, I I need to repent of aspects of your character that I have overlooked. Maybe for some of you, you need fresh strength. And so Katie's going to be available at the side, and Deb will be available at this side. And they'd love to pray with you and strengthen you. In this time, you may feel like you've messed up beyond God's ability to fix or to speak to you. But fear not, God doesn't see it that way. Friends, God is in the business of his amazing grace being demonstrated to those of us who are frail and those of us who stand against what seem like futile circumstances. He can take those broken and shattered pieces and mend them and make them whole. That is what grace is all about. And so let me pray for you as we move into a time of response.